0: To the Deaf Panel, if you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash pod. You'll get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. This week's patron episode is about carceral sanism and recent expansions of involuntary hospitalization in New York, that seek to paint policy for removing poor people from public space as this compassionate and ethical moral mission. It's a great episode, so if you'd like to check that out, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Artie, Jules, Phil and I are going to be talking about an article that we got a lot of requests to comment on, um, which was recently in The New Yorker and served to bolster the Biden administration against valid criticism of their pandemic response and basically just discredit people who were calling them out, as well as anyone else who just casually gives a shit about covid. (laughs) But before we get into that piece, just to sort of set the stage for our teardown of it and its claims, it's important to note that despite what you might get from portrayals like the one that we're about to talk about today, um, according to the CDC's numbers, which we assume are incomplete due to the delayed reporting over the holidays, 10,822 people died in the United States in December alone, 2,500 of them in the last week of the year as of December 28th. So... The CDC is currently forecasting that throughout January we should expect deaths to increase with weekly death estimates conservatively hitting between 3 and 4,000 weekly deaths. Hospitalizations in the US are also trending up and are forecasted to increase. Wastewater data is showing a dramatic uptick especially in the northeast United States. And as we talked about in our episode COVID Year 3, we are still really really in the dark when it comes to reliable case numbers. The CDC has even stopped releasing case forecasts because the state of testing has made those even more unreliable, so they're now just collecting it and analyzing it internally to try and improve their forecasting models. But despite the lack of reliable case data, we do know that there is a new variant that is rapidly gaining a foothold called XBB 1.5, which was first identified in New York City. It went from 4% of sequences to 40% in just a few weeks. And all of this is not even to mention some of the ridiculous discourse going on about COVID and China, which is something we're not going to talk about today, but we have something very special planned for that for the patron feed on Monday. So, you know, just to sort of note the general state of COVID, it's also important to remember the U.S. is not exceptional in its failure here. The U.K. and Canada also just had their deadliest year in 2022. So that is all to say As I mentioned at the top, we're going to be talking about an article that we got a lot of requests to comment on. I'm speaking, of course, about a December 28th, 2022 article in The New Yorker by Emma Green called The Case for Masking Forever. Now, this article is framed as a profile of the group, the People's CDC, which, just as a disclaimer, we are not involved with, we don't speak for or on behalf of them or intimately know them. But as we'll talk about, you know, the aim of the article is actually much broader than a mere negative profile of one organization. And I think it's best to understand this almost as an extension of another piece from the same author who wrote something for The Atlantic in May of 2021 that you may remember called... The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown, which accuse people of being addicted to the fear of COVID.
1: Right. And I'm happy to be that you set this up the way that you did in terms of I think it's really important, actually, to say out of the gate, since we're going to be talking about this article, um, the case for masking forever. um, Spooky, which (laughs) is that the article does yeah, purport to be about the people's CDC, this this group. Um, I don't think it's really about. (laughs) The People's CDC, to be totally honest, it's more accurate, I'd think, to say it uses the People's CDC, um, both their literature and statements from group members that um, the author Emma Green, I think, heard while researching it as a sort of narrative through line to... I think pretty clumsily and transparently try to refute many of really the most basic things about COVID that I think are kept pretty far under the surface in mainstream discourse. And a lot of the things that we try to talk about often on this show, really. But as I think you'll see as we start going through it, I think it uses the people CDC as a stand in for basically any COVID advocacy. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And and I feel like this has been something that like I, I kept when I was reading this, I kept feeling like, uh, oh, deja vu. But, you know, the there have been a art- series of articles for like the last few years sort of latching onto online discourse that's sort of critical of the Biden administration's public health uh, response to the pandemic or, or lack thereof from the left. And, you know, the the article is really a kind of thinly veiled attempt to sort of like defend whatever uh, has been sort of like going on at the national level.
1: Totally. And I think it, it does this in, I would say three ways to preface from the top. Um, one is it basically says what is argued by people for advocate and organize around COVID, um, is not true that people who are, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about COVID advocating about it are approaching a selective view of science, um, that is unsettled unclear science. Um, the author refers to this as moralistic scientism. We'll get into that. Um, (laughs) Two, that advocacy around the pandemic generally is to use a deliberately loaded word, hysterical. <laughs> um, and yeah. also three, that like the C- the people CDC stands alone in yeah. their beliefs mm-hmm. about this. Um, you would never think that something like the death panel exists, for example. So I think I want to start actually on that point about unsettled science or about this sort of moralistic scientism, I actually wanna highlight one particular quote from the article from the top, because I think, I'm, I'm gonna, we'll return to this, I'm sure, but I think this specific couple of sentences just gives away sort of the, the entire move that's happening here, and really the problem with this supposed refutation. So here's one of the big statements that this New Yorker piece makes. Quote, the people's CDC talks about science as proof that the member's position is correct when in reality they're making a case for how they wish the world to be and selecting scientific evidence to build their narrative it's a kind of moralistic scientism a belief that science infallibly validates lefty moral sensibilities
3: yeah <laughs> i just like keep thinking i just keep thinking you know to connect this to, to the recent episode on how liberals um killed universal masking, right? There's these interesting <laughs> set of visions. I mean that that criticism that you just read, you know, verbatim could be lobbied at the actual CDC. That oh, exactly. you're just hiding behind um the badge of science to justify you know the demands of market capitalism to force people back to work and to adjust and intervene into rates of death and disablement, you know, for the interests of the national economy, right? And it's so interesting throughout this piece, but I think that that's sort of the kind of keystone moment that the people CDC is sort of utilized to draw this distinction that is just so facetious that some people are emotionally motivated. One of the other <laughs> phrases yeah, that, or right. one of the other terms that, that recurs throughout the piece is grievances, that the yes. people who are a part of this group mm-hmm. have grievances. And if you have a grievance, if you're, mo- emotion, if you're motivated by emotion and you have a grievance, then you can only ever use science as a prop. Um, and then if you sort of set that up against all these institutionally ensconced people who either work in the field of public health even though there are people who work in the field of public health in the people's CDC, or people who used to work at the CDC, then um, <laughs> you get to just create this distinction between, well, those people are emotional. Um, right. And these people are judicious. And it just so happens that they agree with the consent political consensus uh, in the Biden administration and the one running the CDC. I mean, it's just such a funny... You know, it's just it's just so silly. I mean, to, to to draw these kinds of distinctions and dress them up as if like I, I don't know. I just find it really funny that this sort of accusation that some people, um, you know, so, some people are motivated by <gasps>
1: ideology, but not
3: us,
1: <gasps> never Shock us. Right. I think um, this is like the ultimate turn of keep your politics out of my science because they're, yeah. you know, they are saying the, the claim, the accusation is you're, you know, that there is that there is a political choice being made to highlight some scientific evidence over mm-hmm. others in order to portray the world as they wish that it would be, or as we wish it would be. And that's the point, as mm-hmm. you say, like that is the part that's in part the, the point that we and others have been trying to make about what the Biden administration and many in the media have been doing this whole time. So yeah, exactly. And so that that I think is going to color a lot of the comments that we have.
0: I mean, this piece really kind of shifted a a fundamental piece of thinking for me, because for a long time, my least favorite phrase of the pandemic was that the problem was that COVID had been politicized. Mm -hmm. Right. And that that was really the issue <laughs> writ large, mm. bottom line. We had only, if we had only remained perfectly neutral, then we would be fine. Everything would go away. And that makes me very angry to hear <laughs> yeah. as a phrase. Like, but reading this piece actually kind of shifted my thinking and made me hate follow the science or mm-hmm. we are following the science more than yeah. the problem is that, yeah. you know, science has been politicized <laughs> because the idea of there being a the science, like capital T, capital right. S science,
1: follow the science has the problem is that we're politicizing COVID embedded within it. Right. Exactly. And hidden
0: too. And hidden. Yeah. And, and whenever you hear someone say, I'm following the science, I'm just like, motherfucker, whose science? Which science? Right. Like it actually the idea that science is a settled debate is actually kind of contained within the idea of following the science itself. And the way that that has been foregrounded throughout the pandemic is rhetorically what I think has opened up so many opportunities for arguments like this to be reproduced, where you right. have the idea of like science and the perspective of conflicting results based on different studies, but done by different people with different motivations and different affiliations and different biases and different disciplines, that that can cohere into one agreed upon narrative is just such bullshit. But what it does is that you know it takes this idea of there being a settled debate and puts anyone that disagrees with green's framing of the pandemic as being no big deal and places them in this position where people who are still protecting themselves from getting or spreading covid are painted as you know quote unquote insane or even at base level just politically toxic in a way that's basically portrayed as dangerous to mainstream democratic party success and this is not just about like individuals but the ideas themselves. And so anyone who is just sort of casually telling their friend or their boss or explaining why they still mask is now subject to this sort of stigma of being like outside of the science.
3: Yeah, I think actually, that is one of the reasons that it's really helpful to read this piece, right? Not just to get your blood pressure going in the morning or whatever. But (laughs) I think if we if we're trying to to get ahead of or sort of stay on top of the leading edge kind of a rhetorical justifications for the deadly status quo, um, then I think, yeah, if you you read this piece, and, and I agree, I think it kind of really comes through on a second or a third read, just sort of track the mirroring going on. And I think this is something that we can really get into as well and talk about. But on the one hand, you have to watch how tightly there's a sort of correlation being made here between uh, a fantasized consensus around the science, the 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 thing that we already know, um, and a consensus being produced and handed down about so-called public opinion, right? The idea that ev- actually everyone else in the country has already decided the pandemic is either over or it's not a big deal, or we quote unquote hashtag have the tools, right? And if you sort of watch how intensely those two things need one another because they're both um, props, right? They're both sort of smoke and mirrors. And so the only way to sort of stand on their own two feet is for them to mutually reinforce each other over and over again. And so, in that sense, the people CDC serves as this kind of foil where, like, oh, well, not only are they out of step emotionally and their perception is out of step with the rest of the country, which There's no way that we know that is true at all. Um, At the same time, oh, they're so out of step on the science. Um, And, you know, there are all sorts of semantic games, I think, and sort of really, really sort of hair splitting. um, Sort of, you know, if I were being my former English professor self, I would say like bad faith, close reading going on to sort of justify those interpretive moves. But I think it's really telling here that we're seeing this kind of um, shift in the way justification is sold now, because it's not even... I mean, it's so obvious that the science, right, you know, that that doesn't really hold up when you sort of start asking, Some questions about the data behind it and the evolving research etc but by the same token then right neither does public opinion and so they both need each other to put kind of a an undifferentiated front on uh, because otherwise this house of cards is looking real wobbly
1: well yeah the the implication is we should all follow the science directly towards ignoring material reality that's right (laughs) in front of us so but jules earlier you mentioned um the the recurring use of the term grievances in the article. And that sort of sets us up well for one of the things that I think is really the most important to talk about from the top, just to make sure that everyone kind of understands the very clear position that this article is coming from. I just wanna talk about and highlight a, a couple pieces of just the tone of the article. This is, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read a couple of quotes out of context, some of which will actually like return to their context later. The obvious first one is just the, actually starting with the name of the article, <laughs> The Case for Masking Forever, um, which I think is this sort of archetypal clickbait red herring. You know, here are the people still upset about the pandemic, they want you to wear a mask for the rest of your life, don't you hate that? Shouldn't you be scared? And note that just no one in the like, no one in this article actually says we should wear masks forever. The second, though, is I'll I'll just read a a couple of direct quotes. Uh, So, for instance, this is how the article portrays uh, the people, CDC, and again, by extension, COVID advocacy as a whole. Um, Quote, they have made it their mission to distribute information about the pandemic, what they see as (laughs) real information, as opposed to what's circulated by the actual CDC, unquote. Uh, Another one quote in the organization's written materials, a few specific grievances come up again and again with varying degrees of scientific support to back them up. Another quote, their messaging has the unmistakable inflection of activists speak marked by a willingness to make eye popping claims about the motivations of politicians, corporations or anyone in power. Finally, um, they note that, quote, this constituency is loud on Twitter and they are influential in the press.
0: I mean, that kind of framing of like, you know, this is an emotionally driven argument by people who, because they're sort of forwarding this like moralistic perspective, right, have kind of won over hearts and minds in the press is something that we see so frequently in terms of like just dismissing. Everything from saying that, you know, universal masking is a good thing because it allows people who are immunocompromised to like not worry as much about going into public space. And that universal masking is good because it reduces overall virus in the air. That that in and of itself is a kind of moral superiority, like wokeism argument, I guess. And I I think this framing is just like so often levied as a way to just sort of immediately dismiss COVID as not just an emotional problem, but like a problem of people who just don't see the world accurately and aren't practical, right?
3: Yeah. One of the ways that the piece kind of marshals people in the service of making that point is by calling in people who used to work at the CDC or Tom Freedom, who used to lead the CDC um, during the Obama administration. And it's just really interesting to me as a piece of writing, the way that those interlocutors kind of emerge as these reasonable, judicious people whose disagreements, if we read closely, are really not substantive. They're just emotional. Right. So there's, you know, the the author says, I called Tom Frieden, who led the CDC during the Obama years to see what he made of the people CDC. He had never heard of the group before I got in touch, but he took a look at their materials ahead of our call. He praised the organization's guide to self-protection for immunocompromised people and agreed that some of the recommendations, like universal masking in times of high COVID spread, were good ideas in theory. But is that going to happen? Absolutely not, he said. Quote, if you're giving recommendations that no one's going to follow, that's not only non-productive, he said, it's counterproductive. Well, because I've, that undermines your credibility. I am just like, this yeah, that's, the,
1: that's what undermines your credibility. Sure. Yeah.
2: But this is the thing. This is the this is the whole interesting like thing about the framing of the piece, is is just like this is a piece of this is a curio piece. Like here look at these weirdos doing this weird thing. Um, And rather than like, you know, interestingly enough, I think there's a piece to be written about like, okay, well, exactly what do people do when government advice on, you know, public health or like public health messaging, like whatever the major functions of public health are, regulatory or informational? Exactly what do people do when that advice or action is evidently not working? Right. Right. Like what are the things that people resort to do? And so this idea like the the freedom quote, like, well, giving advice that people aren't going to follow, like undercuts your credibility. Well, the reason why groups like this are uh, advancing, you know, the argument that more people should mask is because it's not it's not necessarily because the CDC discounts that argument. Evidently, when there are spread, at least on paper and from time to time, uh, they have to, in a way, be forced to at least admit it. But it is not the kind of thing that actually has political priority, uh, so to speak, within the administration. It's counter to, I think, that sort of the major narrative of, of COVID that, you know, is like the political narrative. Um, and so in other words, like there has to be somebody else to say it. Like there there have to be groups in civil society to to say it. So like the the really funny thing about this is like it draws this line between the state response to covid which is almost never kind of articulated but it draws this line between uh, a state response as if the state response is do whatever emma green (laughs) wants or whatever uh and then rather than talking about civil society in some sort of like with some sort of cross section it says let's just take this one group and like have that group stand in for the you know dissent uh whereas it's like the, the whole project is like a state society project of like Yeah, actually, how do we how do we respond when there is a death and disease that's persistent and and evidently the major public health strategies, by the way, including the the, the vaccination campaign? Um, like aren't working. And when like take up a Pax Love is very low, like, you know you know what I mean? Like that's, that's right. the thing well, that like struck me is like the editor was like, you know what? That's cool. We're just going to make this like a fun curiosity piece <laughs> and not like a piece about
1: the fucking pandemic, which you would think that like the august New Yorker would maybe want to do. I don't know. Yeah. Look at these fucking weirdos. Right. Well, what the, and I'm glad that you frame it in, in this way, Phil, because um, one of the things that this is making me think of is how it's in a way this classic move of a particular strain of liberal which is to say you know how dare you uh challenge the like challenge the specific maneuvers or the political prerogatives of the people in power who like are of your party or Mm -hmm. something that politics political decisions what happens within the state and how it is managed are sort of the exclusive domain of the Elected officials that we have decided to represent us and it should stay there and those people should autonomously make their decisions. And how dare, as you're mentioning groups in civil society, feel like how dare people out in society challenge that. Right. right well, yeah. Um, right. Which, is, it, it, like, which is absurd and defeatist and not how politics works, obviously. But yeah.
2: well, by the way, like it's it's also a very specific choice to cover only what an organized group is doing. A lot of the way that civil society responds to these things is completely unorganized disorganized and in order to find it you would have to find the advice that people on the job say at you know your local you know you know target or like big box store are giving to one another (laughs) about how to you know how to uh, deal with the possibility that like oh yeah you could get really sick and it's going to be a a pain in the ass you know what i mean like that's like to actually understand how civil society responds to these things you would have to not do the kind of tawdry uh journalism that that this person is doing (laughs)
0: Also, I think it's worth stating that all of these accusations, like that they are putting forward what they see as real information that these are, you know, varying degrees of scientific support backing up these claims that right. these are eye-popping claims. Um unmistakable inflection of activists speak, loud on Twitter, influential in the press, like grievances. Like I'm sorry you describing like Stephen Barral, Great Barrington Declaration, Urgency of Normal, Lena Wen, like you could be talking about any pandemic commentator who has dominated Monica Gandhi, Vinaya especially Prasad. the ones
1: who say things that the Biden administration is doing. Right. Basically. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this this kind of things that yeah.
0: this kind of accusation, right, like is is so hollow because it's it's not only vague, but it also completely misdescribes and mischaracterizes just one flavor of of like pandemic commentary as being aberrant or being kind of like pushing it a little too far which completely ignores all the people like that have been pushing absolutely ridiculous things like that children cannot get covid or that there was like one person one doctor who was pushing the idea that children won't get covid because they're short right and like they wouldn't (laughs) get infected the same way
1: so we've established what the author you know thinks of, again, I think not just this group, but about people like us, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And beyond tone and, and talking about the way these ideas are generally addressed in the piece, obviously, I think it's really important to go through a couple of the things that the author kind of just tries to either brush away or sort of cast aspersions on that are sort of basic principles, really, that I think frankly, we here at the death panel, like try to get across all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking, I'll, I'll, I'll list them really quickly. And then I think we'll go through the specific mentions of these in more detail. But uh, this includes stuff like the article casts some shade at referring to the Biden administration's COVID strategy as the vaccine only strategy, uh, a term that we use a lot. It Asserts really heavily that one way masking works, according to experts, unnamed experts. <laughs> um, the author also casts doubt on criticism of the COVID, uh, the CDC COVID isolation policy change that happened in December 2021 that we talked about a lot in COVID year three. Mm-hmm. Um, it also casts doubt on long COVID itself, both its frequency and its severity. And then, of course, it Cast out on COVID and health as a collective responsibility in the first place. So <laughs> it would be great if we could just walk through a couple of these. The first is the vaccine only strategy. Um, this is a subtle one, but they say basically, mm-hmm. uh, green Green writes they strongly support mass mandates, arguing that quote the vaccine only strategy promoted by the CDC is insufficient unquote. Mm-hmm. Just noting here the use of quotations. They're quoting a group member here. Mm -hmm. unwilling basically Mm -hmm. the author is unwilling to bring this in as something that's actually happening basically and I think it's just important to note that
0: Mm -hmm. no absolutely I mean I think the decision to frame that as a quote versus like a simple statement of fact about their beliefs which is actually what it is right like if you're Writing this sentence, you could do it so many different ways, but there would be like no way of writing it with or without quotes that wouldn't necessarily like portray this as the author's opinion, right? Like she is saying explicitly that they are arguing the vaccine strategy is insufficient, but there is like an explicit refusal to even recognize that as like a valid claim. And I think that's where the kind of framing of the quotes comes in. Not only does it kind of make it you know, put it into question, right? But it also explicitly places it within their speech and yep. makes it something that, you know, both Green and the New Yorker are refusing to put in print under their own framing without that kind of like direct and deliberate attribution, like outside toward other people.
2: Well, right. And there's no a positive definition at that point. It like it's like by which they mean blank. Right. Um, exactly. You right. Know, so like which it's like, okay, the Vaccine only is is a shorthand for the fact that on other protective measures, you know, I think it is pretty hard to argue that the government hasn't, you know,
1: fallen behind on encouraging them. Right. I mean, that's it would be really hard not to argue that. Right. Exactly. Well, and this is important because. So much of the, well, the the reason for calling it, the reason for referring to this stuff as the vaccine only strategy, which is obviously what has been happening, is we see over and over uh, time and time again, as we talked about in COVID year three, for instance, like the Biden administration will deliberately specifically say, you know, masks have been a, an important tool during the pandemic, but there is a time and a place for them. <laughs> and then they say like, As the line has now become, you know, most of the people dying are either unvaccinated or not up to date with their booster or didn't get Paxlovid on time. That's their words, not the reality, because (laughs) now more than half of people dying, more than half of all COVID deaths are in vaccinated people. But you know, they say that. And then at the same time, you know, 15% of people have been boosted, like 3% of kids under six months have been vaccinated, like 5% of kids between two and four have been vaccinated. You know, this is even if the even if all of this were true, and there were a reason to just go with the vaccine only strategy, we're, we're not in that universe, actually, that that things like this article and the Biden administration itself want to really claim that we are in.
0: Right. And also by leaving it kind of out there like that, by not actually elaborating on what the shorthand of like vaccine only strategy is even referring to, which is that we are undermining the efficacy of the vaccine by letting it rip while we're rolling out the vaccine. And that, you know, when the vaccine came out with these beautiful efficacy numbers that made everyone so excited that we were going to maybe have a quote unquote normal life again, that was kind of promised to them by the Biden administration, that that was in the context of broad masking. And then if we want vaccines to be that effective against COVID, that the best way to accomplish that is to layer fucking masking (laughs) and vaccines. Like, but the way that it's thrown out there, like this, if you don't know what vaccine only strategy means and you're reading this article, you might be like, oh, yeah. wait, the people CDC is anti-vax. Like they don't think right. the vaxes are uh-huh. good. Like I'm just thinking about like what is a vaxed and relaxed person thinking as they're reading this? Well, sounds like vaccine critical, but right. that's it, not it's, at all what right, the framing exactly. is. It's,
1: that's, and that's the case for a lot of this language and the reason to draw attention to it, it is specifically i think for someone who is you know coming in reading the article in good faith maybe doesn't know anything about it for like a quote-unquote naive reader or whatever it could very easily be like oh wait what these are like a bunch of kooks okay anyway as i mentioned the second is one-way masking i'll just read the quote really quickly we don't have to go as in-depth as that with all of these but i think it's important to just like have these things read for what they actually try to say and how they try to refute these basic points but uh, Green writes, quote, the group argues that one way masking is insufficient, but some experts in airborne transmission argue that it's strongly protective for vulnerable people. Uh,
0: this this one made me so mad.
1: Some experts. Yeah. yeah. Strongly
3: is, protective. I mean, when you don't experts? substantiate any of these claims, it's uh, they're vague, right? Like how strongly protective for what vulnerable people in what situation are. Right. Like these it's one
0: line. Right. And this is also one of those number one like errors you're not supposed to commit in journalism when you're talking about science is to sort of just say some experts claim this like in, you know, refutation, like you could say some experts claim that Agent Orange is actually really good for you (laughs) and that getting cancer from it is like a, a way to live a productive and happy life. Like, I'm sure like whatever you can find people that say that getting COVID is good for you. Like, very easily who have credentials. So to leverage some experts like that in this context is just like one of the most sort of disingenuous framings that you could possibly like throw in. Well, especially
1: specifically because as we talked about in the episode, um, how liberals killed masking, there's basically one expert this could mean, which is JG Allen and the other experts who talk about this. Most, like for the most part, literally just are citing a specific Q op-ed yeah, from of, December yeah. of 2021.
0: Not a study. That
1: as we talked about in that episode uh, is is not not realistic. It's like conflating um, air filtration rate for masks with actual chances of getting an infection, which is not the same thing. Whatever. We talk about that more. in. The, and also in just to
0: reiterate, the point of masking is to reduce the overall amount of virus in the air. So that's why one way masking is not great.
1: Third is isolation policy. I find this one hilarious that they even tried to debunk this or or whatever. Um, Quote, the scientific claims that the people CDC makes about the real CDC's policies are not necessarily straightforward either. The People's CDC says that a five-day isolation period for vaccinated people is unsupported by evidence. But some studies suggest that most transmission happens right before and right after people develop symptoms. I'm
3: sorry, can I just say that's a deceitful statement because it marshals a piece of evidence that's technically irrelevant. Like if more transmission occurs early on during infection does not mean that no transmission or no (laughs) substantial transmission occurs later in an infection. Like if this was in you know, a student paper, term paper that I received, I would have to underline that sentence and say, like, just so you know, like, you're not actually arguing the point you think you're arguing here unless your intent is to deceive the reader.
0: Right. It's like one of those things where you point to something and you say, don't care about problem A because problem B is so much worse. Therefore, A is then, you know, irrelevant, right? Which is like, you could be talking about apples and oranges. They could have zero relation to each other and be sort of coincidentally, thematically, Related at a superficial level, and that's exactly what's going on here, which is that, you know, there are explicit verbatim statements from the Biden administration saying that this switch in policy was driven by economic priorities and the fact that the with the high level of transmission that was going on during the Omicron wave during the beginning of our let it rip era that the 10-day isolation was unworkable for society to continue to function. If that many people were gonna be sick, then Mm -hmm. we couldn't isolate for 10 days anymore because society would collapse, right? And that (laughs) that was explicitly said.
2: The purpose of it was is that given the wave, the extraordinary unprecedented wave of infections that we are experiencing now and will certainly experience more of in the next few weeks, that there is the danger that there will be so many people who are being isolated, who are asymptomatic for the full 10 days that you could have a major negative impact on our ability to keep society running. So the decision was made, although it's not completely risk free of saying, let's get that cut in
0: half. The behavioral science, what will people actually do when people need to get back to work? So from what you're saying, it sounds like this decision had just as much to do with business as it did with the science. Well, so it really had a lot to do with what um, we thought people would be able to tolerate. Well, And this is the corollary, though,
2: of using the state as a surrogate for talking about science, which is that it can't be the case. That changing the isolation guidelines from ten to five days is a reflection of like policy uh, desires <laughs> or like economic motivations. Like, if you're using the state as a surrogate for scientific consensus, which I think you, it could be said that this is what the author is doing here, then you like then you can't admit to that, right? right. Uh, it has to be like they're the only reason why the CDC would change that guideline would be because that's what the science tells it to do. I mean, it's funny that kind of the author, you know, is quick to to note that the kind of like the failing of what she calls the, uh, the quote unquote progressive imagination, you know, the, the, the failure of that is to treat science as like giving an obvious and like obvious one way indications of like in prescriptions of what people should do, that it's not complex. And yet when it comes to actually talking about the motivation of the reason for this like decision, it's funny how, e- how non-complex the <laughs> yeah. science becomes.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just replicate that thing that I'm calling a failure real quick uh, mm-hmm. in my own rhetoric. Um, mm-hmm. The again, not to belabor, there's, if you want to hear more about this, the isolation thing specifically, we did talk about this a lot in COVID year three and specifically the fact that, for example, when this isolation guidance was announced, CDC scientists were pissed and confused about the change because there wasn't evidence for it mm-hmm. and they couldn't really make any. So it was a whole problem. Um, but again, we get into that in, in that episode. So fourth um, big claim, uh, sort of scientific fact that the New Yorker piece wants to rebut. Now we're getting too long COVID. So um, I'm just going to read this, uh, this paragraph actually here, because this is um, a real highlight of the piece. I would say the paragraph starts with more grievances, colon, More grievances. The People's CDC believes that the CDC downplays the risk of long COVID, a post-viral syndrome that can follow the initial infection. The People's CDC matter-of-factly reports that getting COVID more than once increases your risk of death and hospitalization, and of developing chronic conditions affecting your lungs, heart, brain, and other organs. That no amount of COVID is safe, and no number of shots can protect you. Quoting then from one of the People's CDC's documents, Uh, Quote, we want to say plainly that you can have a mild infection and still get long COVID, the organization wrote in a report in June. Quote, vaccinated people can also get long COVID.
0: Objectively true.
1: They frequently (laughs) cite the figure that one in five cases may lead to long COVID symptoms based on a CDC study of data gathered in part before vaccines were widely available. All of this is an argument against treating COVID like any other inevitable seasonal yuck. Instead, we should think about it as a quote-unquote mass disabling event.
3: Well, I mean, again, the contrast here and the use of, of quotes that we've been dialing into, I think, is so helpful, right? What are the, the, the two assertions quoted from this weather report? We want to say plainly that you can have a mild infection and still get long covid That's 100% true. Totally true. And then Mm -hmm. second, vaccinated people can also get long COVID. That is 100% true. Okay, cool. But then there are some real interesting lines from the author that are just in here, right? No number of shots can protect you. Seasonal yuck. Uh, like, wait, what? What? These are, you know, the the. It's just so interesting it's, that it's like
1: painting them as uh, engaging in hyperbole. Yeah. Yeah, hyperbole, when but by fact, the, author is the author engaging herself.
0: Yeah. Yes, jinx. No, but right. absolutely. And this is something that like we have seen over and over leveraged against long COVID. That like, mm-hmm. no, you can't trust the prevalence. No, anyone who who's mentioning the prevalence, they're just trying to scare you. And people are literally just saying like. No, like you can still get long COVID even if it's mild, like you can still get long COVID and and even if you're asymptomatic and like you can still get it if you're vaccinated, which is an incentive to avoid infection for a lot of people, not just the acute infection, but the possibility of not just like long-term illness but the medical bills that come with it right mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. the fact that this is just written off as a kind of hyperbolic anxiety right i think reflects a lot of the ways that we think about illness in our society and the way yeah. that we like cast moral aspersions on sick people saying that like oh no like illness health this isn't like a collective issue this is like moments of individual failing down to Misinterpreting the world around you and perceiving yourself to be sicker than you actually are. And and these are like the fundamental ways that we write things off, we brush them under the rug and we allow really blatant and fixable health issues that could be addressed very easily just completely languish and get worse and worse because it's all about Making sure that people don't talk themselves into the idea that they're sick and become malingerers Mm -hmm. who are, you know, psychosomatically convinced that they are now sick with long COVID and going to remove themselves artificially from the workplace when they could still be productive earners. We can't let this social sickness spread through awareness of the fact that long COVID even fucking exists. And that's what that fundamental anxiety is from people who are like pushing these minimizing long COVID narratives is they're just terrified of the idea of a kind of social contagion of false sickness. That is the biggest fucking lie that we reproduce over and over and over and over again that has no fucking correlation to reality. I mean, this is something we talk about in our book a lot in health communism.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And then I think um, sh- should be said too, just as we were talking about the quotes, putting, you know, Another quote unquote in here is mass disabling event um put yes. it, you know mentioning that when as we've talked about before, even the Brookings institution has you it's know not put a out controversial a, term put out a report yes. saying that as many as four million four million people are out of work due to long covid you know this is not you know, yeah. th- I think not exactly it's... needing to split hairs here, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm ready
0: for Emma Green's new article that's going to be like, listen, y'all, the polio epidemic really wasn't a mass disabling event. It was no big deal. And covid isn't either. Deal with it.
1: Not all water is wet, you know. Um <laughs> Anyway, the speaking uh... of are all eugenics eugenic. <laughs> right. Exactly. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. We will get to that in just a second. Um That is uh coming up very shortly. Um so the the last one that I just wanted to address is not quite the same as maybe something like saying like the author saying like oh yeah one-way masking works totally like and they're they're ridiculous for saying that it's insufficient. The the final one is actually just kind of more towards again just a a really broad point that we try to make on this show on De- on death panel um all the time which is about covid as a collective responsibility mm-hmm. uh like that about public health as you know, the public part of public health, I guess, and about health in general as a as a collective thing. So Green writes of this, for example, quote, the group takes issue with the way that the CDC emphasizes individual choices over collective action. As the current CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, has put it, your health is in your hands. Zoe Thill, a family physician in Brooklyn who was zooming in from a room full of potted plants, got heated just thinking about it, quote, when we say, do your individual risk assessment and plan accordingly, that says to certain people, stay inside forever, for fucking ever, she said. For me, it's about countering that. It's about saying, no, that's not okay. The other people, CDC members threw up emojis in approval, red hearts clapping hands.
0: That whole potted plant line is so weird. I feel like it's like a trad wife diss being like, (laughs) this family doctor has an apartment full of potted plants and not screaming children. So what does she know about modern life? Because she got heated,
3: right? She wasn't just speaking as a doctor. She also was emotional. And then other (sighs) people used emojis because they were on Zoom. I mean, okay. Like, I know it's nice to have a little... Literary flair. I want to see this. I want to see these people. I want to, you know, feel or I want to rather, you know, feel a little bit of a scene. But yeah, that the, the floridness or the floweriness of that prose feels like a little dripping with contempt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's using it to be she ain't.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's using it to, I mean, both of those things um, portray this as being delivered via, I would say, you know, essentially some imagined version of like a, a cloying annoying liberal bleeding heart or mm-hmm. something you know what i mean uh like that like that type of person and that and i think between like the potted plants thing and the and the zoom emojis i think is trying to show them as basically kind of like an out of touch or immature from a capacity, and coming yeah. from a different class position than just cloying. you know yeah. what i mean yeah anyway yeah mm-hmm.
0: Obviously first thing about this is that like I don't think I've ever seen anyone approvingly quote Rochelle Walensky saying your health <laughs> is in your hands before this moment because the fact of the matter is is like what the people CDC is saying um you know is not a unique claim of the people CDC this is no. something that we've been saying on this show since March of 2020 and that, it's not like, and
2: it's also not unique to us it's like no. a kind of bedrock Uh, principle going back a very long ways.
0: Absolutely. And the other thing too, is that I think part of this uh, sort of framing of this collective response, that this is kind of immature, this is unreasonable, that this is like a kind of unpractical view of the world, but it also in a lot of ways is kind of just like framing it as The idea of a collective response is this really radical solution being forwarded by like immature weirdos locked in their house and that they don't recognize the way the world works when in actuality, this is not some like, you know, quote unquote, psychotic idea from health communists. This is just like very basic public health principles. When you have a respiratory pandemic, you cannot respond on an individual level because the virus is just in the air. And that's just how it works. And then beyond that, like some of the ways that she's trying to sort of characterize and frame the vibes around this are just really so clearly like cheap shots trying to sort of undermine the credibility of anyone that's that's really actually making these arguments or making these claims which again are basic 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 ideas no
2: i mean but this is this is the thing it's like is there a story about you know activism and and like the pandemic here uh sure sure there is uh, and is there a story about politics and the pandemic here like sure there is it's a story about why the united states failed to control the fucking pandemic like you know what i mean this <laughs> <is> the-
1: <laughs> um yes
2: well, you go back to the beginning of the pandemic and you like the early comparative statistics like would say that, like, it is in fact, not, you know, not just the failure of like a collective uh, publicly oriented government response to the pandemic. But the fact that, like, it's not exactly like you have a lot of compensating institutions in civil society that are going to emphasize anything other than a, 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 like an especially like, individualistic, you, you know, your health is in your own hands, dude approach to things like that is a fundamental feature of the American response to the pandemic. And it utterly eludes the author. Um, it's like, it's like, why does this sound weird? It's like, it, maybe it sounds weird or maybe these people, uh, seem, I don't know, enraged because of this legacy of failure. I mean, like, that's the funny thing. It's like, it's a curio piece without wondering why it's a curio piece.
1: Right. Right. So this actually sets us up really well to talk about. So we've mentioned here are the things that the author sort of disputes um, and calls matters of either unsettled science in almost a I mean, almost frankly, in a, a, a proximity to climate change denialism mm-hmm. way of like, well, some other experts say that this isn't a problem. So, you know, we should maybe default to either saying it's up in the air or that, um, and and thus they're sort of choosing the more extreme option. And doesn't that make them hyperbolic and annoying? And the authors talk some about how, you know, these disputes are, quote unquote, difficult to adjudicate, etc. And goes on to sort of include some things about then, if you kind of have, you know, come to understand that uh, maybe they're picking and choosing science and maybe they're kind of annoying or maybe, you know, people who do COVID advocacy are just these sort of out of touch, bleeding hearts or whatever, then what, what is that worldview coming from? Like, what is, uh, what is the sort of like leading them into this hyperbole? And I think that um, the the reason that this potted plants thing is really appropriate is because I think that one of the main ways that the author Emma Green chooses to sort of portray the reasons those decisions are made the reasons that they come from this ideological perspective is that she thinks of them as sort of to I guess ironically borrow a phrase from Jordan Peterson woke moralists which is to say uh, you know for instance in the section I'm about to read Green leans heavy on the use of the term eugenic as almost a sort of Sort of like some of the other terminology we've talked about before as something that I think to a naive reader is supposed to be a self-evident signal that the people CDC and others who do COVID advocacy are essentially, you know, fear mongering prone to confabulation or are dramatically overstating their case. And now I'm going to read this in a second, but I just want to say from the top, this part might be might get complicated to explain um, because I know a lot of people, like including on the left, disagree with us about the term eugenics. So if that's you, just hold that thought. Um, I'm going to read this short section, then we're going to talk about it. And we happen to actually have two people here. Um, who literally study eugenics both as a historical movement <laughs> and as a term signifying a very particular ideology or biopolitics. So, uh, yeah, again, hold hold your thought. Here's, here's the New Yorker piece. Uh, I'm going to pick up actually from the bottom of that paragraph that's about long COVID where she talks about the mass disabling event term. Quote, all of this is an argument against treating COVID like any other inevitable seasonal yuck the People CDC argues. Instead, we should think about it as a quote-unquote mass disabling event. And then there are masks. The People CDC strongly supports mask mandates, and they have called on federal, state, and local governments to put them back in place, arguing that, quote, the vaccine-only strategy promoted by the CDC is insufficient, unquote. The group has noted that resistance to masks is most common among white people. Lucky Tran, who organizes the coalition's media team, recently tweeted a YouGov survey supporting this and wrote that, quote, a lot of anti-mask sentiment is deeply embedded in white supremacy, unquote. This kind of accusation is common for the People's CDC. Their messaging has the unmistakable inflection of activist speak, (coughs) marked by a willingness to make eye-popping claims about the motivations of politicians, corporations, or anyone in power. Quote, to name it clearly, the CDC's policy are eugenic, the weather report team wrote in August. They rely on and promote the indefensible stance that disabled and elderly, poor and working class people are disposable, unworthy of care, and unworthy of participation in society, Unquote. Back to now Emma Green is writing her, herself again, uh, giving commentary on this quote. <laughs> Eugenic policies have a long and ugly history, commonly associated with the Nazis, white supremacists, and others who advocate the racial purification of humanity. I asked Thil whether she truly believes the CDC is eugenicist, along these lines. Quote, just because a charge is difficult or impactful doesn't make it a wrong charge, she said.
0: (laughs) This was so funny to me. I mean, this whole idea of like... You know, you can't say eugenics because it's unfair and leveraging this historical legacy of the Nazis and the Holocaust in a way that is like both insulting to the legacy of the Holocaust, the memory of all the people who died, but so categorically inappropriate because it is something that ended and did not continue past that historical moment. And anyone that thinks otherwise is absolutely fucking bonkers. I mean, that is really what a lot of people who are arguing that this is like being leveraged as a word, not because it's categorically appropriate and descriptive of the priorities that are being played out in the COVID response, but because it has emotional charge, because it has this connection to Things that are, you know, considered to be things that we have uh, removed from our sort of social fabric as priorities or as actions that the state is OK with doing. And the fact of the matter is, is that eugenics is actually still the word to use here. Eugenics means so many things, but most principally what it describes are beliefs that state policies in particular should be designed to maximize advantages for those perceived to be healthy While minimizing reproduction both in a literal sense and like in a capital sense of people who are considered dysgenic or not good towards the like kind of bettering of the nation. Eugenics was and is a race science and you cannot also separate the construction of disability as an ideology or the idea of health or healthiness from racial capitalism. And this is one of the reasons why this is being leveraged here, right? Because we are seeing very clear connections, both in who is dying from COVID disproportionately, who is experiencing the kind of brunt of the so-called burden of disease versus who is driving the removal of mitigations and protections to prevent the spread of disease. You see actually white people leveraging their power in a way that results in more people of color being sick and dying. And that is textbook race science leveraged towards policymaking that is going to prioritize the survival of one group over the other. And this is, you know, people are like, no, no, no. Eugenics is just about breeding. Eugenics is just about, you know, it's just about uh, the Nazis. But, but like if you look back to the very first definition of eugenics, which is from 1883, which is from Sir Francis Galton, he's mm-hmm. very clear about this fact of, it's not just about breeding. It's about transforming the entire social and political fabric of society towards the survival of the fit and depriving the unfit of resources, according to a white perspective of who qualifies as fit as un- or as unfit. So he writes, eugenics is a brief word to express the science of improving stock, which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which takes cognizance of all influences that tend in however remote a degree to give the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they would have otherwise had. And so, yes, this took the form of things like, you know, better breeding programs and the kind of better family contests where we really kind of took large groups of people, marked them for sterilization, and put them in institutions and prevented them from having families and lives. But this also took the form of things like, you know, in the United Kingdom, orphanages, wetting down infants and leaving the, the windows open overnight because they couldn't afford to take care of all the people that were being dropped off to their care. And so this was a kind of way of culling the stock so that they were only prioritizing using resources on the quote unquote strong babies that could survive. And so this is like one of those kind of moments where when we talk about the the decision making and the priority that we've seen in the pandemic, the kind of idea of like one way masking works and is totally sufficient or vaccine only strategy works and is totally sufficient those frameworks are really prioritizing people who are considered to be healthy and saying that people who might be more vulnerable to disease well you know society's not really organized for them and the idea of taking additional resources or protections in order to make society accessible to everyone that that is not only like above and beyond what is required of us And this is why it's so important actually to use the word eugenics, because eugenics implies this next thing I'm about to say very specifically. But that if we were to give the resources necessary for more broader survival, if we were to prioritize those quote unquote less suitable races and strains of blood with the more suitable races and strains of blood as the eugenicists frame it, then that would lead to the fundamental destruction of the human race, that we actually cannot survive as a society or an economy if we take the time to take care of everyone equally. And that's why this word's appropriate. And I think a lot of people just, they see it and they think, oh, no, this is being used to to leverage a kind of emotional response, but it's actually really descriptive. And it's about being accurate about what the priorities are in these in these policies that are being made and really sort of what is the ultimate result in terms of like producing in the social fabric, a kind of dynamic within the population that relates to an idea of the survival of the nation as a whole, hinging on abandoning certain segments of the population.
3: Beautifully, beautifully put. And I think that, you know, the way that green, it's so telling to me that green has to you know, go out of her way to point out that eugenic policies were associated with Nazis and white supremacists and racial purification because it's a very common reflection of just what happened in the aftermath of World War II, which is like the consolidation of a sort of liberal internationalist rejection of 19th century race science and 19th -hmm. century racial politics for the kind of consensus, liberal racism and race science that we inherit to this day, which is a shift from race as a kind of biological trait um, to race uh, being sort of funneled through the proxy of population. And so something like public health as a discipline (laughs) is very explicitly designed to inherit that legacy. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, Of course, if you wanted to set up a kind of alibi straw person, right, you would say, well, you don't think the CDC is full of conspiratorial racist eugenicists. No, of (laughs) course not. The whole point is that's not how eugenics work anymore. Exactly. (laughs) Eugenics very advantageously shed its explicit language of race war (laughs) and, you know, um, and it shed its very explicit language around race in order to become more subtle and more able to work at population levels. Uh, and so the kind of taking for granted technocratic fatalism that you know, wide swaths of people who might uh, tend to be disabled, elderly, poor, working class, people of color will die. There's no way for them not to die. And therefore the role of the state and the role of science is merely to make rational decisions not about just who will die, but how many people will die, how quickly they will die, under what circumstances they will live and die, what the quality of that life and dying will be. All of those rationalizations are the legacy of post-war eugenics. This is like a very, very, very sort of basement, ground floor point in the scholarship on the history of race science and the history of eugenics. It's not you know, groundbreaking, but it's a very common liberal talking point to stop the clock at 1945 and be like, hold on, you're saying the CDC, you're saying the Biden administration is white supremacist. Yeah, not in intention, not in sort of character and motivation, right? But in the reliance on the techniques of eugenic science and population management, that is what we are doing. Every single aspect of policy here is geared towards that. And it's just hard not to read this paragraph in the piece as also... Rather disrespectful, um, you know, to to the opening of the piece and to the person mentioned the opening of the piece, Mindy Thompson-Fullalove, who is a professor at the New School, a professor of urban policy and health, right, who opens whose story opens this piece because she has spent her career studying disease and epidemics and looks at how, for example, black and working class communities are disproportionately affected by disease and epidemic, right, and by death and and disablement. And it's like, uh, yeah, so you're really also circling back here to disqualify people who actually do this research, right, by setting up a kind of false narrative about what eugenics, I mean, just it really reminds me of this sort of tone policing, right? That says like, if you invoke a term, it is in and of itself disqualifying, right? So to talk about Mm -hmm. race or to talk about racism disqualifies you and somehow makes you the racist person. Or in this case, I don't think it's quite that extreme, but it's more like, um, this is hysterical. This is uh, trumped up. This is over the top. No reasonable person would think this when exactly... The contrary is true. This is all about making, um, you know, 21st century eugenics as reasonable as possible, because we are being asked to accept and rationalize uh, not just the fact of mass death um, and and uh, and disabling, you know, experiences, but actually to understand that there is. Uh, we have to also accept that this particular technocratic regime of frequency, intensity, distribution, and all of those other things. And so, for anyone to raise a counterpoint to all of this. Uh, you know, somehow we've got our head in the sands, we're just stuck in a fantasy of how the world was in the 1930s <laughs> and 40s. I mean, it's just, it's pretty embarrassing. But but understandably, I think when you sort of, you know, tuck these things in, right? I mean, I think about this all the time as someone who does study eugenics, like I do not expect people to to know all of that, right? And so it really has quite a charge to it. I mean, I think that paragraph is incredibly charged. And again, for it to end, you know, by asking the the really tough question, well, do you truly believe the CDC is eugenicist? And then the quote, you know, the quote, I would just be so curious to know, just because a charge is difficult or impactful, doesn't make it a wrong charge. Yeah. I wonder what else, you know,
1: that Bill, um who's replying there, also said... Yeah, what else was yeah, cut out there? What else is in the <laughs> internet exactly. So, I think this gets us to a really big point that is, I think, one of the most important other kind of uh, moves that is done in this New Yorker piece, and that is, uh, I will just summarize it before I read this. I can just summarize this as the better things aren't possible argument that we're all <laughs> very familiar with. Um, and because I think... You know, reasonably, you could think, OK, so again, imagining like we, we've set this up like, OK, there are some crybabies out there, lefty types, mostly <laughs> who are, you know, allegedly ignoring how chill and cool the pandemic has become uh, for everyone. And they just want to make you scared about covid or whatever. And they're contesting all of the, the real science or something
0: I'm doing it for attention.
1: They're like hysterical or something. But then, you know, just in case, of course, in a a piece of writing like this, you have to account for, again, that sort of naive reader coming in and saying, well, but what if they're right? What if we could be doing more? Mm -hmm. And so, again, you know, imagining someone taking this at face value. Could we be doing more? Like, wait, like, could we? And Green has an answer for that, which is no. Um, so, uh, so here, here is, um, this actually pulls together, uh, two separate things. And this is going to overlap a little bit with the bit that Jules was drawing from earlier. Here's the quote. If your goal is to get as close as possible to zero COVID deaths, the available policy options are not great. If the United States were an island in the South Pacific with a population smaller than that of New York City, we could pursue a policy similar to New Zealand's in the early months of the pandemic, strictly limiting travel to and from the country. Which is interesting that they go there with that. Again,
0: Biden administration apologia.
1: Well, I mean, and ironic because like. The very bad decision by the Trump administration to be approaching things as an immigration measure early in the COVID response, you know, was something that liberals pointed to as a bad thing. And now it's just like, oh, yeah, well, of course, we should close the borders to China or something. Of course,
0: we need Title 42. Um, What are you talking about?
1: Green continues. Or, if the government were willing to follow China's long-time strategy, we could lock down whole cities, confine children at their boarding schools for months at a time, and forcibly send people to state-run quarantine facilities. The people CDC members weren't willing to talk about what it would take to achieve zero COVID cases in the US. Quote, it's not our job to dictate policy, Phil said. We're filling gaps. We're trying to change the narrative, and we're trying to lean into love and equity. Unquote. For the public health leaders who do actually dictate policy, though, (laughs) the question of how you put an ideal into practice is not one that can be sidestepped. Quote, the goal was initially to eradicate and eliminate this virus, Howard Coe, a Harvard public health professor and former assistant secretary of health told me. A couple years into it, everyone now realizes that's not a realistic goal, unquote. I called Tom Frieden, who led the CDC during the Obama years, to see what he made of the people's CDC. You heard this part before. He had never heard of the group before I got in touch, but he took a look at their materials ahead of our call. He praised the organization's guide to self-protection for immunocompromised people and agreed that some of their recommendations, like universal masking, in times of high COVID spread, were good ideas in theory. But is that going to happen? Absolutely not, he said. If you're giving recommendations that no one's going to follow, that's not only non-productive, he said, it's counterproductive because that (laughs) undermines your credibility. Later in the piece, Green writes, among the people I spoke to who have actually led public health agencies, all were sympathetic to some of the critiques that the People CDC makes. But these experts also found it hard to take the group seriously because of its strident analysis. What do they mean by strident analysis? Well, quote, the CDC has become the punching bag of the country. Another expert, Zink, told me she recognizes that the pandemic has been scary, sad and frustrating for many people. Her reaction to hearing those criticisms, particularly the eugenics comment, quote, it's just more sadness. (laughs)
0: This is like one of the things that I think has been one of the most frustrating um, kind of framings that we've seen leveraged throughout the pandemic, which is just like this idea. And we saw this kind of in the, the framing of, you know, this is a recommendation that would be great, but like if you issue it, no one will follow it and that'll undermine your credibility and like. Yeah, maybe these critiques are on point, but like using a word with such a negative connotation to describe the CDC undermines trust. And the real problem with the pandemic is that COVID has been politicized and we need to reestablish and build trust in public health and blah, 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 like whatever. That's not the fucking problem. Like the fucking problem is that there's a virus that is making a lot of people really sick and killing people that is disrupting life. And we are not doing shit to mitigate it when we absolutely can. And, and it's so frustrating because everyone's like, oh, no, we got to play this like 12 dimensional nudge chess with the American public in a way that is like austerity brained liberal paternalistic bullshit. Right. Like this whole idea of needing to like not be honest, but find a clever way to manipulate people into doing things that are good for themselves. Right. Like that really, at the end of the day, like just reinforces the individualistic nature of how we pay for things and how many people as a result go without care and die earlier than they have to because we treat our population like it is disposable and like those who have access to care have it because they deserve it and those who don't well too bad they were probably not going to sort of be those productive citizens anyways because if they did they would have the good job and they would have the things that they needed to keep themselves safe from the pandemic
2: well I think the other thing that's like entirely missing from this article entirely is just this sense about like power in like this organization or any other I mean like one way of thinking about what is the question that, that an article in this zone like might be asking is like Okay, the US outcomes on the pandemic, despite a change of administrations, remain very bad. And, you know, and like there have been changes in strategy around the margins, but like many ways there's also a lot of convergence. And at the same time, they're like, there is some knowledge out there that like what is going on is not producing better outcomes. Like things are not, you know, uh, that there's no countervailing. Power in society, there are not mass-based organizations that can form to make different kinds of demands that parties themselves don't effectively, you know, convey those demands. And okay, so you have an organization out there that you know is not necessarily numerous uh, in terms of its membership; it doesn't have leverage, but it's making an argument that's like maybe different than you know the administration. Like that's sort of a, a you know perhaps a frustrating place to be and frustrating place to organize from or, you know, like it, like it is, there is a story there. Right. But this is real, like the real content. um, And I, this is not merely in this piece, but this is just like, I think the way that people conventionally talk about these things is like the real content is, you know, what arguments can you make that are permissible about like your appraisal of what's been happening here Um, And which aren't like, which are the things that like, you know, when you say it, you are an out, you just like marked as an outcast from like the, from, from the conversation, right? Like, it's all about the sort of the propriety of different kinds of arguments. And I think that to just miss the question about like, okay, well, when there's failure on some important dimension of like the state's like what the state it's, it's authority and legitimacy is sort of like grounded on, then you would expect some sorts of reactions in society and you don't actually see them in very strong ways. Like what is like, what is society doing? And so like, rather than that, it's like, no, this group wacky making arguments that, you know, I judge to be uh, wacky. Therefore go on, go on to the next article Do read the fiction section. There's a good, uh, there's a good, you know, Frederick Seidel poem in this issue. <laughs>
1: I think we're getting towards the end of this. I don't think we're going to like, obviously we're going to get to everything in this. Um, Unfortunately, I think that includes, we're not going to get to the uh, red baiting part, which is so funny where uh, Emma green says, essentially, I was wondering if based on the way that they talk about these things, if COVID advocacy was, you know, full of those people by which she means communists, which is really funny for me considering that B and I put out a book called health communism last year, but you know, I think since we're, since we're coming to an end, I, I do want to, I think, maybe a good place to, to end this on is just to return actually to where we started with the first quote that I read um, that I think I'll just like read again um, for context now that we've gone through so much of this. Here it is again. The People's CDC talks about science as proof that members' position is correct when in reality they're making a case for how they wish the world to be and selecting scientific evidence to build their narrative. It's a kind of moralistic scientism, a belief that science infallibly validates lefty moral sensibilities.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that this conversation has really helped me understand about this piece is the way that it's a little bit of a layered cake, right? That, you know, each of its ostensible purposes doesn't really seem to pan out, right? It's a piece about the People's CDC, but it seems like it's trying to talk about something, you know, that that could be exemplary of without naming it. On the one hand, the People's CDC, you know, membership is cast as sort of perhaps inappropriately emotionally motivated or, you know, naive and and hysterical and in any case, insufficiently technocratic. And so they're just sort of, you know, motivated by... Feeling On the other hand, what if they're actually, you know, kind of funded by liberal groups? Or what if even some people in the CDC, you know, sympathize with them? What does that mean? But because it never sort of arrives anywhere, right? I think to me, part of what all of this sort of intramural squabbling over like, why can't you just be happy? You know, Democrats run the CDC or like, why can't you just let public health do what they do? Um, Why do you have to be so difficult about this uh, imaginary person who never actually really appears in the article is because it is sort of layering that on top of this much more significant point, which is, I think, also why the the piece has to do this sort of kind of truly staggering moment of like, are you all communists? Right. Which is um, basically trying to style any sort of opposition to the rationalization of the public health metrics of death and disability that COVID, you know, has really, really sort of laid bare in such an obvious way that any questioning or critique of that is really the thing um, against which there has to be so much ideological mobilization. And we have to work really hard to disqualify people who question the really basic point that it's OK to, to be uh, letting so many people get sick, to let a, a virus run rampant, to let people die, um, and to let people have to you know experience all of the various fallouts of, of that pandemic. Um, because in fact, we could be doing something. Uh, we could be doing many somethings. But at any point, just to lobby that kind of opposition in itself has to be disqualified, right? And so I think that by sort of, you know, baking that underneath the layer of all of these other points we've been moving through where it's like, it seems like there's a plot, but then it just stops, right? Um, It just sort of allows for that deeper project to continue on. And I think that's how I, you know, could better understand this piece living in a much bigger media ecosystem too. And it's just so interesting to me. And I, and I so appreciate that kind of, um, you know, the the quotes that recur from people who were interviewed in this piece, people from the People's CDC over and over again, right, and towards the end, just disagreeing, right? Not, not always so much with the technocratic business of it all, but just with the basic idea that everything has already been decided, the future and end, so-called end of the pandemic has already been determined, and that nobody cares, uh, you know, that that second... That penultimate paragraph of the piece begins with Green saying, in much of America, the pandemic has seemed over for a long time. Um, but then the final quotes from uh, from Hope Bradfield, uh, a member of the People's CDC, is just disagreeing with that, disagreeing with the idea that yeah. no one cares. And, and I think that that, again, that thing that's cast as like a difference of feeling actually is a much more profound difference. It's the difference around which, you know, Um, This community and death panel is organized, right? This rejection of the idea that we're going to accept the rationalization um, and consensus of this much wide scale sickness and death. Uh, And that I think really, you know, it's so interesting to me actually how much work it takes to bury that, right? And to disqualify and delegitimize that critique in a piece like this. I think it really, when we break the piece into its working parts and look at how they Operate together and look at those individual claims, right? That 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 are so easily um, contextualized, and you know, where it's so easy to to point out and and you know what you know, science or data, or what what we know already, right? I just think that that fundamental difference um, that you know the the pe- the folks from the people CDC keep coming back to is a really important portal. Um, to understanding how there is a lot at stake here, right? And there is a fundamental disagreement over the rationalization of sickness and death and a disagreement with this kind of technocratic consensus that's being fed to us without any proof that that in fact is how most people in America or in, quote, much of America people really feel. I don't think we know that. I don't think there's any proof that that is the case. And I am grateful for people... You know who will take the time to just simply point out? Nope, I do not agree with that. I actually have a different (laughs) point of view. Yeah,
2: but I mean, this is the thing: is that like you know, I I keep coming back to the question of like why focus on this group? And I I guess it's like easy story. I don't know, you know. But the (sighs) but the bigger but the bigger reason is like the dead don't speak. Yep. And the and grieving and uh, actually the experience of illness in the United States is a profoundly. Experience is a profoundly individual event and not mm-hmm. a solidaristic event, not a public event, not a political event. And so the so it's a quite a, like I think like a natural, um, I think, lazy, but 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 natural uh, leap to the conclusion of to like the sort of the nihilistic conclusion. Nobody. Uh, what, what does it mean that more people are not forming such uh, organizations that such organizations are not mass organizations, right. That, that, um, that like the, that there is not a groundswell, say of public demand, uh, at least for some sort of like acknowledgement of exactly what has happened and how the actions or inactions of government have, Led to those outcomes. Um, the problem here is that like we're not preoccupied enough with how to turn that, I think, uh, highly individualized experience of illness and uh, and suffering and and, and death um, into something political and out of the kind of shell that it's or like the box that it's in. And like that's and that's the thing that like the, the author is just profoundly uninterested in. It's, like, way easier to just say, like, God knows why these people are doing this, <laughs> yeah. right, than to ask the question of, like, wh- why exactly is it that not just, like, even before the pandemic, the the health outcomes on a number of, like, very important health conditions are as bad and as disparate in the United States as they are, and this is not even something that is, like, popular elected officials want to take up as a problem to be solved that like that, that that there's not a sense that like there's an advantage there's a percentage in solving this problem um like in the absence of curiosity about that like it's just like you have no imagination or like interest as a journalist and so why are you doing what you're doing
0: yeah and it's ultimately a move like this you know It serves to undermine solidarity within a growing and very intellectually and ideologically diverse constituency who are broadly calling out the U.S. federal government for abandoning public health in favor of personal responsibility. And the way that this is framed, like, obviously, this makes it seem like they're standing alone. And that's absolutely not the case. But part of the point of coverage like this is to create the perception that, These are beliefs that are solitary and shrinking. And that's actually not the truth. This is this is a kind of growing constituency. There is broad criticism of the Biden administration from lots of different angles. And some of us are communists and it just happens to be that way. And that's fine. But, you know, and and maybe this is a good place to leave it for today patrons will catch you monday in the patron feed everyone else will catch you later in the week in the main feed to become a patron and support our work which is entirely listener supported patreon.com slash pod you'll get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes and as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week
4: my legs ran frantic like birds from a nest and i ran until drained leaving no choice but rest so i fell asleep softly the edge of a